Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The COVID-19 pandemic is dominating the headlines these days, eclipsing the political campaigns that are underway in anticipation of the November elections. How are the candidates adapting to the reality of social distancing that has upended traditional campaign strategies? And how is the fear of COVID-19 impacting the presidential primary elections? This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson joins us via Zoom to discuss the state of American politics in the era of COVID-19. Professor Pearson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. After a fight between the Democratic governor and the Republican-led state legislature, Wisconsin held its primary as scheduled despite stay-at-home recommendations from the state due to COVID-19. What were the reasons for holding the primary during this pandemic, and why not postpone the election and make absentee voting more available? Well, states control voting procedures, and states have gone different ways on this. Some states do have vote-by-mail already instituted, such as the state of Oregon. But there are other states, including Minnesota, that only do absentee ballots and don't have voting-by-mail widespread. And so with Wisconsin, many of the states that had primaries scheduled for the same day or a week before or a week after had successfully moved their primaries. But Wisconsin's legislature and governor couldn't agree. Democratic Governor Tony Evers had uh, instituted uh, an order moving the primary so that people wouldn't be voting in the midst of COVID-19, but the Republican legislature in Wisconsin rejected that. And so it ultimately went to the Supreme Court where there was a decision to hold the primary and not allow absentee ballots that came in after the date of the primary to count. And so what this really underscored is that it is important that every state think about November and what they will do to keep voters safe uh, in November if COVID-19 is still a problem, which it seems likely that it will be. In Milwaukee, the largest city in Wisconsin, only five of the 180 polling places were open. This disproportionately affected Black and Hispanic voters in that state. What impact might this have on the election results and will citizens accept the results as legitimate? Right. It's highly problematic. We saw very long lines because, of course, uh, voters needed to stand uh, six feet apart. We saw lines that wrapped around for blocks. And so, of course, many people went home. Um, Many people didn't show up to the polls in the first place because they were worried about getting sick reasonably. And then the people who did show up perhaps saw the lines and thought this is just unreasonable. Um, Yes, democracy is important and people want their vote to count. But when faced with long lines, Uh, It it could be just too overwhelming. And so the the fact that Milwaukee's voting locations went down to only five could absolutely disenfranchise some of Wisconsin's uh, poorest voters socioeconomically. And uh, voters of color also disproportionately live in Milwaukee compared to the rest of the state. And so it's a huge problem, um, both in terms of uh, voter enfranchisement and in terms of thinking about the election results. And it wasn't just uh, the Democratic presidential primaries on the line. There was an important judicial race. How are other states handling their primary elections during the pandemic? Many states have postponed them. In fact, some states have actually postponed them twice because of this. But the results now going forward will be interesting, of course, because the Democratic primary has essentially wrapped up. But that doesn't mean that there aren't 
other important races for down-ballot elections. And so this could have impact on congressional primaries, on uh, other judicial races, on other legislative races, on other races that are important where there might be very low turnout. There was another important race on the ballot, a contest for the state Supreme Court. The conservative incumbent justice was defeated by his liberal opponent. Why was this race important, and how did it play into the partisan battle over the election controversy? It absolutely played into the election fight. It was a judicial race for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And as we know, um, this is extremely important. The candidate on the ballot had been appointed by the former Republican governor. And so this was the first time uh, that there actually was a contest in many states. um, Although they have judicial elections, um, they're essentially referendums on the incumbent because many of the Supreme Court candidates wind up being appointed appointed by governors after retirements. And so there's sort of this hybrid system of appointments and then also elections. And so this was the first time that a Republican appointed Supreme Court judge was on the ballot in Wisconsin. Is Wisconsin a preview of what we may see in November? If the pandemic continues to keep people at home, will we see other partisan battles over the election in split party states? Well, in some ways, we're already seeing partisan dynamics play out. President Trump has tweeted uh, and stated his opposition to vote by mail, even though there are actually many Republican governors and Republican elected officials who uh, are in favor in various states of of vote by mail. So, yes, and this is where I think the effects of federalism are extremely important. Every state does voting differently. Voting is left to the states to figure out how exactly it happens. Um, Of course, the election date is the same across the country, but states are in charge of uh, election process. And so that's why in Minnesota, we're seeing some Republicans push back about uh, DFL Secretary of State Steve Simon when he has offered proposals um, to make voting by mail more widespread in Minnesota. And so the partisan dynamics here are interesting, but the evidence is not so clear that vote by mail necessarily helps one party or the other, although President Trump is very much framing it in that way, uh, suggesting that voting by mail helps Democrats, even though the evidence on that is not so clear. Our guest is Katherine Pearson, an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on elections and political campaigns. The results of the Wisconsin primary became available on April 13th, and former Vice President Joe Biden defeated Senator Bernie Sanders. But Sanders pulled out of the race the day after the primary. Why did he not wait until the results were in before making this decision? Well, polls in Wisconsin had suggested for uh, a while that Biden was going to defeat Sanders in Wisconsin. And I think sort of more important is the dynamics of this race. And they're twofold. One is that it was increasingly difficult for there to be any possibility of Sanders to overtake Biden in the race for delegates. Mathematically, it was distantly and remotely possible, but the polls just were not in his favor, uh, in Sanders' favor, in the states that had not yet voted. And COVID-19 has really put the Democratic nominating contest on the back burner. Sure, the candidates were still campaigning, but it was increasingly difficult for them to get coverage. Um, And going into the fall election, it seemed particularly helpful for Democrats to consolidate in favor of the candidate who was 
the most likely to get the nomination. And that was that was Joe Biden, because it was nearly impossible uh, for Sanders to overtake him in the delegate race. In 2016, Sanders won both in Minnesota and in the Wisconsin primary. Minnesota still had a caucus at that time. Why did he lose in Minnesota and Wisconsin this time around? Well, Minnesota's dynamics, of course, shifted because of the move uh, from a caucus to a primary. That increased voter turnout significantly, and it increased voter turnout among people who care about the nomination process, but were not the most uh, devoted caucus goers um, and those who were most likely to be passionate about a particular candidate, and in this case, a particular candidate who was more ideologically extreme. And so uh, we've seen that dynamic play out in other states where Sanders had done better in caucus states, um, particularly four years ago, with turnout being low, where people were very passionate and very organized. But when turnout expanded, um, it became easier for more moderate candidates. But I think perhaps even more significant was the fact that Senator Amy Klobuchar had dropped out only a couple days before and endorsed uh, Joe Biden. And that was significant because her poll suggested that uh, Klobuchar had a narrow lead uh, over Sanders going into Minnesota's primary. And the fact that she threw her endorsement very enthusiastically behind Biden really helped him. The other dynamic that was at play, of course, is just the Sunday before Biden had won decisively in South Carolina, a state that was critically important um, among African-American voters who are a key part of the Democrats' constituency. So the dynamics of the race had really changed a couple days before, um, making it difficult for Sanders to win in Minnesota. In 2016, Sanders surprised party insiders with a much stronger showing than anticipated. Hillary Clinton won more delegates by the time the convention was held, but Sanders supporters were angry at the process and accused the party of rigging the system to favor Clinton. Have those issues been resolved this time around? They haven't been resolved entirely. They were always overblown in terms of the charges against the party rigging the system, Um, but I think the process did go better this time around. Um, There was a lot of personal animosity four years ago between Clinton and Sanders. We're continuing to see that play out. Um, And the the idea of superdelegates having a vote on the first round at the convention was something that always upset Sanders supporters um, greatly because Clinton had a massive lead, over 90% among those superdelegates. Superdelegates, of course, being elected Democratic leaders and party activists who got to vote even though they weren't chosen by voters in primaries and caucuses. And so the Democratic Party changed its rules so that this time around, on the first ballot, superdelegates will not actually have a vote. So the charge that superdelegates were somehow going to rig this process, and again, to be clear, they did not rig it four years ago. Um, Clinton won the most delegates without the superdelegates, but the notion that superdelegates would have undue influence this time around was taken off the table because they won't have a vote the first time around at the convention. It is true that Sanders supporters have always been those who are on the outside of the Democratic Party. They tend to be those who are less likely to be party insiders, although Sanders had notably more support from Democratic elected officials this time around than he did four years ago. And so I think that for some of Sanders' early supporters who've supported him for a long time, there will always be that lingering resentment against the Democratic Party for favoring Clinton and then this time around for some of its key leaders, but not all, uh, favoring Biden. But I think that the process at the convention will be smoother this time around. 
At the start of this year, Biden was down in the polls and he had poor showings in the early races of the Iowa caucus in the New Hampshire primary. How did the South Carolina primary fundamentally change his campaign's trajectory? Well, the South Carolina primary came after some pretty indecisive results for the first three contests. Because of the confusion and uh, the sort of difficulty reporting at the Iowa caucuses, um, Buttigieg's narrow lead was only announced a few days later, and so that didn't really give him a boost. Sanders, of course, was expected to win handily in New Hampshire, a neighboring state. And so despite the fact that South Carolina came fourth, also after uh, Nevada, it was seen as a much more important important state because it was really the first time that African Americans were voting in large numbers. And right before the South Carolina primary, Congressman Jim Clyburn from South Carolina endorsed Biden. And that was just viewed as absolutely critical, showing that he had uh, the support of a revered African-American leader um, in South Carolina. And that really just helped Biden shore up his numbers among African-Americans where he was already leading. And so after the first three contests, which really weren't that decisive, um, I think South Carolina just absolutely shifted the momentum toward Biden, who had been you know, doing really worse than expected until then. Does this make a case for a state like South Carolina to be moved up earlier in the primary process? Does this make a case against Iowa, for example, leading off the caucus and the primary schedule? Well, I think Iowa's, Iowa's own handling of the delegate process makes the case that Iowa should not go first. I mean, the fact that the results were actually not in for a few days after it in a caucus state that's not representative. I mean, that I think was very tough for Iowa. And I think after this cycle, hopefully uh, party leaders, frankly, in both parties will think about having many contests on the first day. And so, you know, what if we had all four of the first four states on that first day so that individual states wouldn't have disproportionate impact? I mean, I think that if Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada had all gone on that first day, I think that it would have made, made the outlook a lot different. Our guest is Katherine Pearson, an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on elections and political campaigns. Due to the coronavirus, Democrats pushed their convention up to August. What does the party and Joe Biden's campaign need to do in the meantime to ensure a successful convention and present a unified party? Well, I think the task will be easier for Biden this time around than it was four years ago for Clinton. And that is because although Sanders has said that Biden will be the nominee, you know, Sanders plans to keep his delegates and he plans to keep accruing delegates. And that's not so that he can contest the nomination, but so that he can have influence in the platform, influence in the rules. And so his supporters can continue to feel like part of a process. And so I think that the Biden campaign would be very wise to respect the influence uh, of the Sanders delegates in the platform process um, and in the planning process more generally, even though, of course, Biden will be the nominee. But the other dynamic is it's not so clear that this convention, even in August, will be an in-person convention. And so I think that a lot of campaigning and a lot of the process will just have to take place before the convention. Typically, we see uh, vice presidential candidates selected fairly close in the time before the convention. But I think that, you know, all eyes are on Biden right now in terms of this vetting process. And it's very likely that he'll pick a running mate much earlier in the process than candidates typically do. 
What do the polls tell us about President Trump's approval ratings? Why are we seeing what some pundits have called a Trump bump as the pandemic crisis unfolds? Well, traditionally, during times of war, presidents enjoy what political scientists refer to as a rally around the flag effect. We certainly saw this during 9-11, but during 9-11, President Bush actually enjoyed approval ratings of over 90%. So if we take President Trump's approval bump in the context of a rally around the flag effect, it actually has not been very dramatic. And in fact, the initial bump um, has subsided in some more recent polls. And so uh, President Trump's re-election fortunes really depend on how he has handled and how he continues to handle COVID-19. This is a crisis that will overshadow all else in the election in terms of the issues that people are focusing on. And so He's received mixed marks uh, for how he's handled it so far, and certainly Democrats can point to many instances where uh, he should have been taking it more seriously, should have been preparing in February and was not. And so I think that both what has already happened, but then also what will continue to happen between now and November in terms of the COVID-19 crisis will really be determinative of the election. The incumbent president always enjoys the bully pulpit and the ability to get a lot of media coverage. For example, now President Trump has a daily news briefing about the coronavirus crisis. With the focus now on Trump and less so on Biden, how can Biden counter that lack of media attention? Or is it better at this point for him to lay low until things return to some sense of normalcy? It's a challenge for Biden. Um, This is an unusual context to be running for president. I I think to some extent, he needs to continue to get his own message out. But to a larger extent, uh, he doesn't want to be seen as being disruptive of a national effort to deal with this crisis. So it's a challenge for him because on the one hand, he needs to sort of articulate uh, what he would be doing differently. On the other hand, he does not want to be seen as undermining uh, the president's effort to deal with this crisis, which affects of course, every American. And so it is a challenge. But I think right now, people are very, very consumed with the COVID-19 crisis and not so much with what uh, Joe Biden is doing or not doing. And so I think into the fall, it will be critically important for him to be attracting a lot of media attention and running an effective campaign. But right now, I think he needs to be articulating a message, but not being seen as undermining any national efforts. Up until a couple of months ago, President Trump was relying on a strong economy to drive his campaign. Given the pandemic's dramatic impact on the economy and employment, will he still be able to use the economy to his advantage in November? Well, it's unlikely, uh, given what's happened with the economy since uh, since COVID-19. The stock market, unemployment, people are just devastated uh, in terms of the economic effects on this. I think the real question is whether or not people blame President Trump for uh, the economic crises that many are facing in the midst of COVID-19. And so the economy will certainly be an issue, but I think what is unclear uh, is the extent to which it's an issue that President Trump can insulate himself from blame or whether or not people are blaming President Trump for the economic fallout of this crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic is not just affecting the presidential race. Obviously, there are many other races that are coming up in November. Politicians like to engage in what are called retail politics, getting out, meeting the voters, shaking hands, having very intimate contact with them. Given the restrictions of social distancing, 
How can candidates get around that? Uh, are we needing to rewrite the entire playbook, essentially, for how you conduct a campaign, given the current situation? This is extremely challenging for candidates, especially candidates who are not incumbents, who don't already receive media attention, and who are not well-known. Um, of course, candidates cannot be knocking on doors, holding in-person forums and town halls. Uh, so to the extent that you know we're going to see candidates phone banking and using email and Zoom, and, and candidates with money, of course, will be uh, using the airwaves and, and social media and other advertising platforms. But in many ways, this really advantages incumbents who are well-known and already have high name recognition. On the other hand, uh, depending on how things go, people may be in the mood to blame incumbents uh, for what's happening and, and vote them out. And so in general, I would say that the lack of campaigning will, will help incumbents, but it's a little bit complicated because of the calculus of, uh, of people's frame of mind and how they're feeling in November and whether or not they want to vote incumbents out. Our guest is Katherine Pearson, an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on elections and political campaigns. Are there any similar elections we can look to in history where a major national crisis or a virus occurred leading up to a presidential election? Do voters tend to stick with the president in power or does a crisis favor a desire for change? I think it depends on the nature of the crisis. I mean, most political science models about election forecasting, uh, well, all models highlight the economy and the state of the economy. And so if we are just to run a typical political science model that factors in the economy and presidential approval and the uh, number of years that the same party has been in office, I suspect that the models that are run early this summer, which is when the models typically are run, will suggest that uh, President Trump will be defeated uh, on those grounds, the state of the economy and uh, low presidential approval. That said, some early political science polls, um, early into this crisis, that is, suggested that many voters were actually not blaming President Trump for the economic downturn. Now, whether or not those polls will sort of continue like that, or whether or not the frame of President Trump should have been doing more uh, at the beginning of this crisis when he wasn't paying as much attention as he should have been, you know, whether or not that frame will take hold. I don't know, but we're also beginning to see a real partisan breakdown in the response, which is nothing new. Partisan polarization has affected President Trump's approval ratings from day one, um, but we're now seeing some of those familiar partisan dividing lines uh, for this crisis as well. To that point, we're seeing now a partisan divide over the concept of when the country ought to be taken out of its uh, medically induced economic coma and essentially ramped up again. Uh, it's breaking down along party lines in some cases. Uh, some Republicans are pushing for the economy to open sooner rather than later. Uh, Democrats often are suggesting that we need to really make that timeline set around the virus itself. And when the virus shows signs of waning, then perhaps we can talk about restarting the economy. What kind of political tightrope is being walked here by those who advocate uh, staying the course with social distancing and those who say, Let's open up uh, things sooner rather than later. 
There is a partisan divide, and, it, and it's interesting. Uh, the partisan divide is evident in public opinion, uh, with Democrats being more likely to think that uh, things should be shut down for a longer period of time and more likely, frankly, to take the, the virus seriously. Um, there is a partisan divide in public opinion. There's also somewhat of a partisan divide among elected officials, but it really varies by state, which is what's so interesting. So one of the first governors to act uh, to shut down schools, to shut down a state, have people stay home was actually uh, Mike DeWine, a conservative Republican governor from Ohio. And so there are examples of Republican governors who have been, uh, you know, very active in um, sort of taking as many precautions as possible, whereas there are just a handful of states that do not have stay-at-home orders, but those tend to be, those are all actually uh, led by Republican governors. And so you do have Republicans on both sides of this. Democrats tend to be more likely to uh, have instituted stay-at-home orders and take this seriously. But then, of course, the president um, himself has suggested that people need to continue to stay at home, although he is also at the same time urging things to get back to normal. I mean, the, the president is sort of, you know, trying to have it both ways in some ways, wants to, to get things back to normal, but is also continuing to take the advice of, of medical experts and keeping things shut down. And so in Minnesota, one of the complicating factors is that there are two different scientific models that have uh, different projections in terms of what is happening in Minnesota. And so once you have a gap in the science, I think that has really opened up uh, some of the partisan disagreements where one model says one thing and another model says another. During this crisis, you mentioned, for example, Republican Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio. Governors are getting a lot of attention these days because of the leadership they're taking with their respective states and how to combat the pandemic. Do you think some governors' uh, political capital is expanding here and we may see some rising stars, uh, perhaps even our own Governor Walls, uh, with his leadership? Uh, How are governors really getting more of the national spotlight during the pandemic than they would under normal circumstances? Well, this has been sort of a lesson in federalism. Um, Again, because of the Trump administration's slow response, many governors have stepped up uh, more quickly um, and more aggressively in terms of securing PPEs, ventilators, um, things that their states need. Um, We've seen certainly in New York, Governor Cuomo um, has become a household name, whereas he did not have particularly high approval ratings before this. And so he is now someone who was seen as a terrific leader within the Democratic Party, whereas I don't think people would have said that before this crisis. Certainly in Minnesota, Governor Waltz has received high marks for his handling of this crisis, relying on science, having daily briefings, um, really also having appointed good experts that surround him to brief people and making decisions that he has consistently backed up with science. Of course, more recently, a partisan divide um, in Minnesota has emerged, but, but not a unified partisan divide. And so Governor Waltz has really been out front in this. And uh, although I haven't seen any polling, I would expect to see his his polling numbers rise um, as a result of this handling of the crisis. Catherine Pearson is an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Professor Pearson, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you, Jim. My pleasure. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Be sure to visit us at DialogueMinnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.